Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is where we'll begin this morning, and we are continuing this morning our series together on biblical sexuality. Last week, if you remember, we looked at gender as part of God's design, and also briefly we looked at gender roles for men and women, and we took sort of more of a bird's eye view, sort of an overview of these gender roles, talking in detail about the current transgender debate going on. But now this week, we're going to take a little bit more of a street-level view of these gender roles, and I really want us this morning to dig into what the Scripture has to say about God's design and His blueprint for how We are to function in these roles as men and women. And you may be wondering to yourself this morning, why do we need to address these gender roles? Why do we need to talk about what it means to be a man? Why do we need to talk about what it means to be a woman or to be a husband or to be a wife? Well, suppose with me for a moment that your child or your grandchild were to come to you today and to ask you, Mommy, Daddy, Grandma, Grandpa, what does it mean to be a boy? What does it mean to be a woman? What would you say? How would you answer that question? And church, if the only answer that you have to those questions is about anatomy, then you have missed the biblical picture of manhood and womanhood. Because the reality is is that our culture is seeking to erase and eradicate any and all distinctions and differences between men and women. To say that there really is no difference when it comes to being a man or to being a woman. We live in a day and age where sexual differences are labeled as mere social constructs, meaning that Things like masculinity, things like femininity are seen as just cultural ideas that we've made up that has nothing to do with how we are created. In fact, in fact, to say otherwise is seen as archaic. It's seen as old-fashioned. It's seen as oppressive. It's seen as demeaning, misogynistic. This is the narrative that is being ingrained into us by our culture. This, This is what is driving the LGBTQ movement. This is what is driving the feminist agenda. Author John Piper, he writes this, he says, The tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness and femaleness. But this depreciation, he says, of male and female personhood is a great loss 
and is taking a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not even know what it means to be a man or a woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is epidemic. And, he says, the consequences of this confusion are even greater. It is leading to more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, and emotional distress and suicide that comes with the loss of God-given identity. And so for those of us, church, who hold to a biblical view of manhood and womanhood, there is this now intense and enormous pressure to conform to the culture. In fact, many churches are doing so. Many denominations are doing so. And the church is now raising a generation of boys and girls who don't even know what it means to be a man or to be a woman. So what are we to do? We've got to go back to the basics. We've got to, we've got to go to the scripture to see God's design for men and women to take our stand on the rock of the word of God or we're going to be swept up and swept away by the culture. And so this morning, I want us to look at the beauty of God's design for us as men and women, what he's created us to be, and we're going to start, I want you to see with me at the very beginning. We're going to start in the very beginning, the very foundation of these roles. Genesis chapter 2, if you have your place there, would you stand out of the honor of the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated this morning. Now, before we begin here, we need to, just like last week, first, I think, establish just a few terms. Because our understanding of these terms is really going to shape how we approach this whole subject of gender roles. Is there really even such a thing in the Bible as gender roles? Because there is, a, there is a sharp disagreement, there's a sharp debate, even within the evangelical church, as to whether or not these roles even exist. So let me give you two terms, really two positions on this issue. The first one is egalitarian, E-G-A-L-I-T-A-R. I-A-N, egalitarian. The egalitarian position says that men and women are created equal in all respects, that both in their dignity and in their function, they are 
created equal. That is to say that there is no distinction, there is no difference between men and women other than biology. So there really aren't such things as gender roles that are created by God for men and women. In fact, there really isn't anything that men can do that women cannot and vice versa in terms of function, in terms of position, in terms of authority. So no specific gender roles in marriage or in the church. Men and women can equally function in exactly the same ways. The second position is what's known as complementarian. Complementarian. That's complement with an E, not with an I. Complementarian. And this position says that while, yes, men and women are created by God equal in dignity, equal in personhood, however, they are also distinct in terms of God-given roles and functions. And that these differences are uniquely designed by God in order for men and women to complement one another. Meaning that they, they fit together. They highlight one another. They enhance one another. And so there are certain roles that men are designed to fulfill that women cannot and vice versa. And these roles, they aren't because of intelligence They aren't because of skill. They aren't because of worth or value. No, it's simply because of God's design. And listen, here's why this matters. Here's why this matters. Because this is a debate, as I said, that is raging right now in the evangelical church. And and here's why it matters. Because I believe, follow me here, I believe that there is a direct link, a direct correlation between The egalitarian position that says there is no gender roles, there really is no difference in function between men and women, there is a direct link between that position and the current transgender movement that is being embraced by many in the evangelical church today. And here's why. Because if you begin to loosen God's design for men and women, if you remove these distinctions, if you remove these differences, then I think that the sad, in fact, the inevitable trajectory is that very soon you will begin to deny that there's even such a thing as manhood and womanhood altogether. So this is a massive issue. And it requires our attention. So let me give you three headings this morning to guide us. Number one, we're going to look at the foundation for gender roles. Second, the distortion of gender roles. And then third and finally, some implications for gender roles. And specifically, I'm going to talk about those within the context of marriage and in the home. And I will say that this sermon is going to be a bit different than usual because it's more topical. Typically, we just sort of go verse by verse, just camp out in one passage. But I just want to see, I want to see more broadly what the Bible has to say about this issue. So first, I want you to notice with me the foundation for gender roles. In Genesis 1 and 2, the foundation for gender roles. And, and, and my point here is simply this, that these gender roles are rooted in creation. They are established in creation. That even, even prior to the fall, even before sin came into the world, or there were any kinds of distortions of these roles, that this was God's design for men and women from the very beginning. These differing roles were created by God to beautifully complement one another. 
In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw last week, if you remember, that God is the one who creates gender. He is the one who establishes our sexuality, and that from the beginning, He created a man and a woman, and He created them with equal dignity. Look there in chapter 1, verse 26, after this Trinitarian council is held among the members of the Godhead, in chapter 1, verse 26, the triune God, He creates a man and woman in His own image. Look what He says there, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female, He created them. So both men and women created in the image of God, both valuable to God, both important to God, both intended to resemble God and reflect God, both created in the image of God, equal in terms of dignity. Their equality is even seen in how the woman, notice how she's created. Chapter 2, flip over to chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. So she's made out of the same stuff, the same bone, same DNA, same flesh. As the Puritan Matthew Henry said, the woman was created not out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him. She is created equal with him. And listen, this is why any conversation on manhood and womanhood, it has to begin right here. It has to begin right here. From the, 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 from the very beginning, God is making it abundantly clear to us that men and women are equal. Men are not superior to women. Women are not inferior to men. No, both are created equal. They're created equal in terms of dignity and in terms of value, in terms of worth, in terms of significance to God. But, in Genesis 2, we also discover that while they are created equal, God has also created them with differing roles. And that these differences, they go a lot deeper than simply our anatomy. Now, God has designed us to fulfill certain roles, to function as men and women in certain ways. And we see that foundation here in Genesis 2. Notice first here the foundation of manhood. The foundation of manhood in Genesis 2. And here's what we see. That the man is created by God to function as the head. As the head. The head, of course, being the ruling part of the body. The, the governing, guiding part of the body. The man is to be the head. He is to have headship over the woman. Meaning he is to possess a certain leadership. He is to possess a certain authority given by God in his relationship to the woman. Now, where do we see that here in Genesis 2? Well, first notice that this headship is established in the created order. It's established in the created order. Meaning that the man is created first before the woman. 
Notice in chapter 2, verse 7, that the Lord God forms the man first from the dust of the ground. But it isn't until we get to verse 22 that he creates the woman. After man is already in the garden, he's already naming the animals. Now why? Why does God do that that way? I mean, he could have created man and woman simultaneously, right? He could have created them at the same time. Why, Why does he do it that way? He didn't do it that way. Why? Because he wants us to see, church, there is a distinct order to his creation. That the man is created first and then the woman. There's an order here. The New Testament actually shows us the very same thing. Drawing our attention to this created order. Hold your place there in Genesis 2, but turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians eleven three. 3. But I want you to understand, Paul says, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So clearly, again, that headship language. So head here clearly signifying what? Authority. Authority. The husband is to exercise headship over his wife and over his home. Why, Paul? Look down at verse 8. From man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Then verse 9. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So notice what Paul does here. Paul is appealing to this order established in creation to show and to demonstrate here the man's headship over the woman and his wife. Or how about in 1 Timothy? Flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 2 for a moment. Paul says something similar. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12. Paul here is talking about leadership not in the home, but in the church. But Paul, notice here he appeals to leadership in the church by looking back again to Genesis chapter 2. To God's created order. To God's design. Look through what he says. 1 Timothy 2.12 I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So Paul says, notice, that only men are called to fulfill the office of elder and pastor in the church and that the woman is to remain quiet, meaning in regards to that teaching responsibility. Why? Why, Paul? Is it because she's less intelligent? Is it because she's less skilled? Look what he says in verse 13. No, look what he says. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So clearly, again, there is an order that is being established by God, Paul says in Genesis chapter 2, one in which men are called to exercise headship. They are called to lead. They are called to have authority. That was God's design from the very beginning. In what other ways do we see headship in Genesis 2? Flip back there. Notice back in verse 22. Genesis 2.22, he names the woman. Again, signifying his leadership, signifying his authority. 
We see man is exercising dominion over creation. Look there, chapter 2, verse 15, that the man is put into the garden to work it and to keep it, it says. So man is created to work. He is created to provide. Verse 15, that word to keep there, it could also mean in other places in Scripture to protect. So it seems that there is this element even of protection as it relates to manhood. As one commentator says, man wields both the plow of provision and the sword of protection. So notice here the calling of the man. The man is working. He is, he is providing. He is caring. He is protecting. He's taking responsibility. He's leading. He's exercising dominion. Now how about the woman? Notice next the foundation for womanhood. The foundation for womanhood. Genesis chapter 2. Here's what we see. Here's what we see about the woman. That the woman is created and designed by God to function as a helper. A helper. In fact, twice we're told this. Look in Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So she is designed and fashioned to function as a helper, as, as a helpmate. She supports him. She compliments him. She submits to his headship, his leadership. She's encouraging and affirming his headship in his God-given role. We also see that she has the unique calling to nurture life. Look there in chapter 1, verse 28, that God, he commands the man and the woman to be fruitful and multiply, but man can't do that alone. He needs the woman. She alone can bear life. Chapter 3, verse 20, she is called, the woman, the mother of all living. So, she alone has this unique calling, this unique role of nurturing, of caring, especially in her home, helping her husband, helping her children to flourish. In fact, in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, as we read a moment ago, we see actually that these gender roles of men and women are intended by God to function most beautifully within the context of marriage. And there we see is a man and a woman in this exclusive, committed, permanent relationship of husband and wife. The man is leading here by taking a wife. He's holding fast to his wife. There is oneness. There's intimacy. There's love. There's security. It's just as God designed it to be. So here we see how foundational, I think, these roles for men and women are from the very beginning. This is all part of God's design. And so church, hear me, that while we are swimming against the currents of modern culture who would view these roles as demeaning and chauvinistic and oppressive, beloved, it is good. It is wise. It is life-giving. This is just as how God intended it to be. From the very foundation. But in chapter 3, 
it all begins to unravel. It all begins to fall apart. And we see that what God designs as good is distorted now because of sin. The man and the woman now become at odds with each other. There's conflict in their marriage. Second, I want you to see the distortion of gender roles. The distortion of gender roles in Genesis 3. Here's what we see. Notice here how the consequences and effects of sin are closely tied to manhood and womanhood. Did you ever notice that before in Genesis 3? That when sin enters into the world, not only does it separate men and women from God, placing us under the judgment of God, but also it subverts and undermines these gender-specific roles. Sin distorts God's design for men and women. Look there, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was designed, desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. So sin enters into the world, and immediately it begins distorting manhood and womanhood. Friends, we are seeing the effects of Genesis 3 being played out in our culture right now, here. Sexual sin, divorce, abuse, dysfunctional marriages, transgenderism, homosexuality. It shouldn't surprise us. Why? It's all tied to the fall. Notice first here sin's distortion of manhood. Sin's distortion of manhood. Notice here in Genesis 3, we see both a passive and an active effect on manhood. A passive and an active effect on manhood. Notice first, sin's passive effect on manhood. Here's what I mean. Meaning that sin leads the man to passively abdicate his responsibility. This is the very essence of of what Adam does here in verses 1 to 5. And you may say, well, pastor, Adam didn't do anything in verses 1 to 5. Right? I mean, it's just the woman here who's being tempted by the serpent. Adam Adam isn't even mentioned here until after she eats. Exactly. He passively is doing nothing. So notice how in the very temptation of the man and the woman, the serpent is 
Do you see what he's doing? He's subverting and he's undermining God's design. He's turning it on, his head, on its head. That he doesn't come to the man, he doesn't come to the head, what does he do? He goes to the woman, and the man is just sitting idly by. In fact, notice in verse 6, he's there. He's there with her. And so in effect, the man is saying to the woman, why don't you lead the way? Why don't you make the decision? And the serpent is undercutting here the design of God in the very way he is tempting them. The man is designed to lead. He is designed to exercise authority. He's designed to protect his wife. And here we see him abdicating, passively abdicating his responsibility. In fact, notice in Genesis 3.17 that as God pronounces judgment on the man, Genesis 3.17, he speaks directly to Adam. And what does he say to him? Look what he says, Genesis 3.17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. So before God even addresses that Adam ate the fruit, clearly disobeying a command of Scripture, God says to him fundamentally, you were listening when you should have been leading. You were passive. Silent. Doing nothing. Like a wimp. And then he has the audacity when God confronts him in his sin to blame his wife. Verse 12, the woman you gave me. And church, we are seeing this play out again and again and again and again everywhere today, aren't we? This abdication of responsibility is alive and well in men and in husbands and in dads who refuse to step up, who refuse to lead, who refuse to take responsibility in their homes, in their families, in the church. Males who think they are men when in reality, they are little boys who are abdicating their responsibility given to them by God. But the pendulum can also swing in the other direction as well. The other end of the spectrum. Notice sin's active effect on manhood. Sin's active effect. And here's what we see. We see here that man, oftentimes in this active effect, he aggressively abuses his authority. Look in chapter 3, verse 16. As God pronounces this curse on the woman, the end of verse 16, look, God says to the woman, look what he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So now, because of sin, because of the fall, the picture here is of man's aggressively harsh rule. His forceful rule. His oppressive rule. His domineering rule. His controlling rule. So, if he's not a passive wimp, then he's going to try and dominate her. Abusing his position of authority in the relationship, a clear distortion of his role as the head, as leader, as protector, as provider, and church, we see 
both of these pictures passively and actively in men today, don't we? This is a sad and tragic distortion of manhood. But notice also sin's distortion of womanhood. Sin's distortion of womanhood. Look there, verse 16 again. And here's what we see as a result of sin now. Her defiance against his authority. Look there, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So what was meant by God to be this inherently joyful experience is now going to be marked by pain because of sin. And then he says, verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now men, as much as we'd like to think that this desire here is sexual desire, it's not. Hate to burst your bubble. So what does it mean then, your desire shall be for your husband? Well, notice over in chapter 4, verse 7, the same word desire is used here. The very same word. When God tells Cain, if you remember, chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire, same word, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So Cain, sin wants to rule over you, but you have to rule over it. Sin wants to overpower you. Sin wants to work against you. Sin wants to dominate you. So desire here then, notice, is connected to ruling. So in other words, verse 16, when God says, your desire will be for your husband, he is saying to the woman that the woman now, as a result of sin, will desire to overpower her husband. Desire to dominate her husband. She's going to oppose and work against his leadership. She's going to defy his authority. She's going to try to usurp his headship in the home. She's not going to respond in a complimentary way. She's going to respond rather in a competitive way. In a combative way. I'm going to do it my way regardless of what my husband says or does. She tries to control him. Tries to manipulate him, whether passively or actively, overtly, subtly, she seeks to take control of her husband's leadership and authority in the marriage and in the home. So notice again, notice here Satan's direct assault on manhood and womanhood and marriage. Beloved, there is a spiritual battle, a spiritual battle being waged in your home. And the effects, the results of Genesis 3, they are everywhere, aren't they? Not just, listen, not just across society today. The effects of Genesis 3 are seen all across this room today. The effects of the fall are seen here in marriages in this room, in homes in this room, perhaps in, in experiences you had growing up that have affected you in this very room, distorting manhood and womanhood overall, subverting God's design. So it's no wonder then we don't even know what it means to be a biblical man. We don't even know what it means and looks like to be a biblical woman. So 
What then are we to do? Where sin has distorted and destroyed it. And in the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of all this sin, in the midst of all of this distortion, in chapter 3, verse 15, God gives us here a promise of grace. It's called the Protoevangelium. It's the first gospel proclamation, promise in Genesis 3.15. And, and God says here that even in the midst of all the sin and distortion of manhood and womanhood, this rebellion against, man, uh, against God, in verse 15, He promises here that there is an offspring of the woman who is coming who will ultimately crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15, notice there, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. So God says, I'm going to send one. I'm going to send one who is going to do, undo everything that sin has done to my creation and my perfect design. And I am going to bring my redemption. And brothers and sisters, in light of the effects of sin in our marriages and in this church, And in the world today, as it relates to manhood and womanhood, what we must do is look to Jesus. Because He is the one who conquered sin. He is the one who not only saves us from our sin, but He is also the one who now begins the process within us of sanctifying us of transforming us, restoring in us the image of God that was distorted at the fall, both as men and women. He's the one who's by His Spirit changing us and, and transforming our sinful expressions of manhood and womanhood by His redeeming grace. And this is where the New Testament now takes us. It is the Gospel now that must give shape to manhood and womanhood. The, the, the New Testament lays out this reality that in light of Christ's redeeming work on the cross, here is what manhood and womanhood are supposed to look like if you're going to follow Jesus. If you're going to follow God's design. Here is what a redeemed, restored humanity looks like in Christ. So our goal here, our goal is God's design. And none of us are there. Okay? Do you agree? So, I don't want anybody to leave the room this morning feeling singled out. Conviction, yes. And I recognize that there are different situations and circumstances all over this room. But let's just see God's ideal. Let's just see His perfect example and by God's grace, Can we agree? Let's pursue that design. Okay? Third, finally, I want you to see some biblical implications for these gender roles. And I want you to see this ideal picture here clearly from Ephesians chapter 5. So why don't you turn there. And specifically, as it relates to gender roles in marriage, as husbands and wives. Now, I, I I wish that I had more time to talk about manhood and womanhood as it relates to singleness, as it relates to roles, even within the local church, but we just we don't have time this morning. But, but what we can do, I think, is allow this picture we see here in Ephesians 5 of gender roles for husbands and wives to sort of give us 
some shape and form to every area of manhood and womanhood. Because I think we gain some insight here into how men and women should function generally in these roles. So by way of example, let's look at some implications for gender roles in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, Paul is explaining here God's design for men and women in marriage. In fact, he's explaining here God's intended purpose for marriage. Why did God create marriage? And thus, why did he create these differing roles as husbands and wives? Well, notice what Paul says in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So notice again, Paul, he's quoting here, isn't he, from Genesis 2 to show God's design for marriage. But then, then look what he says in verse 32. He says, this mystery, this mystery, and, and the, he means this one flesh union in marriage. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. So in other words, Paul is saying that in the very first marriage, back in the garden, God had the gospel of Jesus in mind. That he intended through marriage, through these differing roles as husbands and wife, to show off something. To, to show off the sacrificial, suffering love that Jesus has for his people. That has always been God's plan and his design for marriage. From the very beginning. And so God put marriage on the earth. He gave these differing roles as husbands and wives, as a way to show off the picture of his sacrificial, saving love that Jesus has for his bride, the church, in the way that a husband loves his wife, and it should show forth his people's glad response to his leadership over their lives in the way that a wife submits to and respects her husband. Marriage is about that. This living enactment of, of the gospel. And therefore, there are unique roles and responsibilities husbands and wives are to play. What are these unique roles and responsibilities? Well, notice first, let me speak to the wives. Look there. Verse 22 to 24, look what Paul says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So notice that the primary calling, the primary role of the wife in marriage is to submit. To submit to her husband. Verse 22, submit, wives, to your own husband. Her primary responsibility is to gladly and humbly Submit to and support her husband's leadership in their homes. In their home. Now, yes, both the husband and the wife submit to Christ, but she, however, has the unique responsibility here of submitting to her husband. Why? Well, notice in verse 23, because he is the head. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So, she is to submit to his headship. Meaning what? Meaning, 
she affirms him. She honors him. She respects him. Verse 33. She doesn't talk negatively of him. She doesn't talk critically of him. She follows him. She she seeks to enhance and strengthen and cultivate his leadership in the home. So submission doesn't mean that she agrees with everything her husband says or does. Doesn't mean she leaves her brains at the altar. Doesn't mean she never challenges her husband's decision or corrects him. Doesn't mean she's a doormat. Doesn't mean she's a punching bag. Ladies, if you are being abused in your marriage, you must make it known. In fact, there's an early catechism in the early church that prescribes if a woman is being abused by her husband that the elders of the church are to take a few stoutly men with them. Take them out behind the woodshed. So that's not what submission means, but it does mean that she honors and respects her husband's God-given position in the home. And notice Paul says here, though, it's to her own husband. You see that? Look there, verse 22. So she isn't called to submit to every man. And the reason that I say it's a glad submission, it's a willing submission, is because it's one thing to begrudgingly submit, right? But it's to be glad and willing because... As she does so, look there, verse 24, it clearly and beautifully reflects the church's submission to Christ. This is about honoring the Lord and His call on her life. So she's accountable to God for affirming her husband's role. And and I think we also see here, though, in this picture of biblical womanhood, just in general, Not just in marriage, but just in general. Not just as wives, but even for singles, even for ladies in the church, that in the way God, or in the way women should relate to other men. So, yes, she submits only to her husband, but I think here we see this calling here for all women to affirm and support and honor and praise any good and wise and godly male leadership wherever she sees it. Based on other passages as well, we see in Genesis chapter 2 that the woman is also called to a nurturing role, as I said. That she alone has been equipped by God to bear children, to nurture children in a way that complements her husband's leadership in the home. So she is to then, in her calling, be oriented around her home. It doesn't mean she can't work outside the home, but it does mean she has the responsibility of nurturing and caring for her home. Proverbs 31, we see that the noble woman works hard in caring for her home, and in verse 28, her children and husband rise up and call her blessed. Ladies, this is a noble task. Don't you ever let anyone Minimize your role as a homemaker. What a tragedy it is that this role is often viewed as less significant. It's viewed as less important in our culture today. 
Saying that if you really want to find value, ladies, if you want to find significance, if you want to find worth, then you need to be successful in your career. You need to be successful in the workplace and outside the home. Lies. No. This is the calling of a godly woman. And it's a high and noble calling. However, it isn't her only calling. Titus chapter 2, you can turn there. Titus 2, we see she has the high calling of teaching other women. Titus 2 verse 3, older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands and children. Titus 2 3, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands. Women are to train and disciple other women in biblical womanhood. And so her womanhood extends even to the church. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we see her femininity also affects even her general demeanor and the way she carries herself as a woman. Women are to have a gentle and quiet spirit. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. 1 Timothy 2.9, Rather than drawing attention to her physical beauty, Paul says she is to adorn herself in respectable apparel with modesty. Modesty, ladies. So she is to be humble, she is to be modest, she's to be gentle, she's to be submissive, a woman of character. Ladies, this is the picture of a biblical woman. And listen, before you somehow think this is demeaning, did you hear what Peter said? That in God's sight, this is very precious. And so what's backward in the eyes of the world is beautiful to God. Interestingly, Rodney Stark, he's a renowned sociologist in his book, The Rise of Christianity, he says this, I thought this was so interesting, he says that amidst contemporary denunciations of Christianity as patriarchal and sexist, it is easily forgotten, he writes, that the early church was especially attractive to women. Christianity was unusually appealing because within the Christian subculture, he says, women enjoyed far higher status than did the women in the Greco-Roman world at large. And to that we say, of course. This is the beauty of God's design. Now, let me address the husbands. The men in the room. Verses 25 to 30. Look there again, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So notice here the husband's responsibility now in his unique Christ-portraying role. And there are two main callings 
Two main roles for the man we see here. Number one, back in verse 23, notice. The husband is the head of the wife. So again, his role in leading. His role in authority. And second, second role, notice in verse 25. Self-sacrificial love. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what is the call of a biblical man? What is the calling of a Christ-like man? Paul says it is leadership and it is love. So you could say it like this. The man's primary responsibility is, a, is to self-sacrificially lead and love his wife and his home. To self-sacrificially lead and love his wife and his home. Notice his leadership. His leadership. We've already seen how it's woven just into the very fabric of creation, into maleness. But notice here that the husband has been put by God in the inescapable influence and leadership in his home. Verse 23, look there. The husband, notice, is the head. Now that's not a command. Paul doesn't say, men, lead. No, no. It's a statement of fact. Meaning, here's what it means, that husbands cannot escape the influence in their homes. So, God has so wired you men that in your family, you will set the tone and the temperature in your marriage and in your home whether you mean to or whether you don't. And you will do it whether you're passive and you're uninvolved and you're unengaged or you're harsh and domineering and tyrannical. But either way, you're going to do it. I heard someone say one time that men, men that our homes will either be greenhouses or gas chambers. Meaning, either your home is going to be life-giving, it's going to be cultivation of your wife and children, growing, flourishing, or it's going to be toxic, where they wither and choke. But no matter, no matter your intention, you will, you will exercise some kind of influence and leadership, whether you realize it or not. So husbands, listen. When it comes to your influence, when it comes to your leadership, if it is harsh, if it is angry, if it is tyrannical, if it is abusive, then the atmosphere of your home is going to be one of fear. It's going to be one of bitterness. It's going to be one of hard-heartedness. And if you withhold affection, if you withhold affirmation from your wife and your children, then the atmosphere in your home is going to be one of insecurity. It's going to be one of doubt. It's going to be one of craving attention and affection. But also, listen, if the atmosphere in your home is you are passive and you are absent and you abdicate your responsibility and just sort of apathetic, then the atmosphere in your home is going to be one of disorder and chaos and rebellion. And husbands, our headship means we must take the initiative in the home. If there is a discipline issue with your children, if they are disrespectful 
or disobedient, it is your problem, it's not your wife's problem. It means you take the initiative with your children. It means you take the initiative in your marriage. Meaning you don't wait, men, for the wife to come to you and say, we've got a problem in our marriage and we need to address it. No, you take the initiative. That's your calling. But on the other hand, if you understand that your position of influence is inescapable and you embrace the biblical picture here of headship, then your leadership in the home is going to be one that is present, and loving, and warm, and affectionate, and firm, and strong, and tender, and engaged, and full of life. There's going to be peace. There's going to be joy. There's going to be fulfillment in your wife and in your children. So what kind of leadership is, is it to be? Because it'll be one or the other. It's inescapable. And Paul says, the kind of leader you are to be is a Christ-like leader. Notice finally the last element there of the male's leadership. Look there, his love. Men, what above all should characterize your leadership in your homes is love. It is self-sacrificing love. Headship is not a right to rule. It is a responsibility that you are to bear. We are selflessly called to provide and protect and care for our homes by laying down our lives for the good of those we're called to lead. Look there, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, our first duty as the man in the home is to give our wives a living picture of Jesus. Wives, when you look at your husbands, you should see, though imperfectly, you should see a picture of how much Jesus loves you. That's his calling. And how did Jesus love you? Well, it means the husband is going to prioritize the needs of his wife at great cost to himself. Jesus loved her. He gave himself up for her, Paul says. He met her needs. We were saved by his selfless, sacrificial love on the cross, and he met our needs at ultimate cost to himself, and so for the husband then to love his wife as Christ loved the church, it means that we're going to surrender our wants, we're going to surrender our desires, we're going to surrender our preferences to serve our wives and meet our needs. And then listen, you don't have to get super spiritual here, you got to get super practical. So don't shake your heads and agree with me if you can't get off the couch and unload the dishwasher. It also means that husbands promote their spiritual growth. Look there at verse 26. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ died to make her holy. Husbands, 
our leadership in the home is to promote her spiritual growth. Which means we pursue our own spiritual growth. It means we model spiritual practices in the home. It means, men, we take the leadership role in leading our family in worship, whether at home, on Sunday mornings. Notice also it means you prize her. You pursue her well-being. Look there, verse 29. Husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives just as Christ does the church. Men, you are called to nourish and to cherish her. Meaning you don't leave her. You don't abandon her. You don't abuse her, but you cherish her. You make her feel special. You make her feel unique, one of a kind. You've got eyes for no other. You hold her above any other woman. You praise her. You prize her. You speak tenderly to her. You don't speak harshly to her. You're affectionate with her. You look for ways to affirm her. You look for ways to build her up. You nourish her and you cherish her. And men, even beyond marriage, this is the way we are to care for and esteem and honor and protect every woman. Not just our wives. This is the biblical picture of a man. And isn't it amazing that what God gives to us as commands, He knows exactly what we need. Isn't that amazing? Here's what I mean. God knows that women flourish when they feel loved. Men flourish when they feel respected. He knows that women, generally speaking, flourish when they feel adored. And a man flourishes when he feels admired. A woman flourishes when she receives affection. And a man flourishes when he is receiving affirmation. A woman flourishes when she feels security. And a man deeply desires significance. And beloved, God knows what we need as men and as women. And He has designed us this way. It's for our good. And ultimately, it is for His glory. Because brothers and sisters... When you and I faithfully live out this calling as men and women, husbands and wives, it portrays the greatest love story of all. This divine romance of a girl tells the story who was lost, dirty and filthy, full of sin. And her king comes to her. He dies for her. He cleanses her and he washes her and he protects her and he provides her. And then... He rises from the dead to make her his bride and he commits himself to her, promises himself to her for all of eternity. That's the story God is telling. May God make us robust men and women in this church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of